Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Ginworth MI Canada Incorporated 2020 First Quarter Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following management's prepared remarks, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions will be provided at that time. If anyone has any difficulties hearing the conference, please press star, followed by the zero for operator assistance at any time. I would now like to remind that everyone that this conference call is being recorded. I will now turn the conference over to Aaron Williams, Vice President, Finance and Investor Relations. Mr. Williams, you may proceed. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And thank you for joining Gemworth Canada's first quarter 2020 earnings call. Leading today's call are Stuart Loving, our President and Chief Executive Officer, and Philip Mayers, our Chief Financial Officer. We will start with our prepared remarks, followed by an open question and answer session. Our news release, including our management discussion and analysis of financial statements and financial supplements, were released last night and are posted on our website at www.genwork.ca. A link to our live webcast and the slides for today's discussion are also posted on our website. A replay of this call will be available via the number noted in the press release and will also be available on our website following today's presentation. The call will be available online for approximately 45 days following today. Our presentation and discussion today contain a disclaimer on forward-looking statements and non-IFRS statements. We note that our actual results may differ from statements that we make which are forward-looking. We advise you to read the cautionary note regarding these forward-looking statements. As well, some of the financial metrics presented on this call today are non-IFRS measures, and as such do not have a standardized meaning and are unlikely to be comparable to similar measures by other companies. I would now like to turn the call over to Stuart to begin his prepared remarks. Stuart? Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, and thanks for joining our call. This morning, I'm going to touch on some key financial highlights from our performance during the quarter before handing it to Phil for a deeper look at our results. I will conclude with our assessment of the current environment and the factors shaping our revised outlook for the remainder of the year. Clearly, the environment has changed significantly since the start of the year in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting economic shutdown. By mid-March, our business had successfully transitioned to a remote working environment in order to protect the well-being of our employees and continues to be fully operational as we serve our customers during this challenging time. I want to take a moment to recognize and thank all the frontline workers who continue to put themselves at risk while helping so many during this time of need. I also want to commend the government and federal regulator for their efforts in helping to ease the impact this pandemic is having on Canadians and the Canadian economy. Turning to the quarter, we were pleased with our first quarter results, including positive top-line momentum, a 14% loss ratio, and 13% operating return on equity. 
for the quarter, we delivered net operating income of $117 million, down 1% over the prior year period and up 4% over the prior quarter. This resulted in fully diluted operating earnings per share of $1.35, flat to the prior year period and up 4% over the prior quarter. At 14%, our loss ratio came in one point lower than the same period in the prior year and six points lower than the prior quarter, primarily due to decreases in new delinquencies net of cures in Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. Net premiums written totaled $114 million, up 8% over the prior year period, driven by strong growth in transactional insurance volume, which was up 10% on a year-over-year basis. This growth was largely due to the positive momentum we saw in the number of high-ratio mortgage transactions during the prior year, including the last quarter of 2019. We ended the quarter with an estimated market ratio of 172%, seven points above the upper end of our targeted operating range. Redeployment of excess capital has been an active part of our strategy over the past five quarters, including the $400 million in special dividends paid during the first quarter of this year. That said, given the level of uncertainty in the current economic environment, we do not anticipate any further capital redeployment for the remainder of this year outside of our quarterly ordinary dividends. We ended the quarter with a fully diluted book value per share of $39.61, reflecting ongoing profitability offset by the special and ordinary dividends paid during the quarter. With that, I'll turn it over to Phil for a deeper look at our first quarter financial results, investments, and capital position before addressing the current economic environment and its potential impact on our business in 2020. Thanks, Jordan. Good morning. The company ended the first quarter with strong profitability and, more importantly, a strong balance sheet and capital position. Net operating income was $117 million, up by $2 million from the fourth quarter, primarily due to lower losses and claims. Premiums earned were flat sequentially at $171 million. As a reminder, our single upfront premium model has resulted in $2 billion of unearned premium reserves, which in turn provide good visibility and stability going forward. Accordingly, we expect premiums earned to be modestly lower for the full year as a result of the lower expected premiums written in 2020. As Stuart noted, the first quarter loss ratio was only 14% on losses of unclaims of $25 million. Losses were lowered sequentially by $10 million, reflecting the stability in housing and labor markets in most parts of the country prior to the onset of COVID-19. The number of new delinquencies net of cures decreased by 101 sequentially, and the average reserve per delinquency was relatively flat at $79,000. The decline in net new delinquencies was led by Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. In total, the number of outstanding delinquencies was 1,754, and the delinquency rate of 20 basis points were relatively flat year over year. While we expect losses and claims to be pressured starting in the second quarter, strong portfolio quality coupled with payment deferrals and our active loss mitigation strategies are positive factors. With respect to payment deferrals, lenders and mortgage insurers have agreed to allow borrowers impacted by COVID-19 to defer their mortgage payments for up to six months. Payment deferrals will help borrowers bridge income interruptions and should be an effective loss mitigation strategy. However, the company expects that a subset of these deferrals will end up in default after the deferral period ends. As a result, going forward, the company will include a provision in its incurred but not reported or IBNR reserve for its estimate of losses from defaults that would have otherwise occurred had payment deferrals not been in place. 
The IBNR reserve will be estimated using the company's internal loss forecasting model and several forward-looking economic scenarios for regional unemployment rates and home prices. Each of the base case upside and downside scenarios will be assigned a probability weight, with the base scenario receiving the highest weight. Expenses in the quarter totaled $37 million, inclusive of a $3 million expense related to share-based compensation. As a result of the market correction in March, the NYC share price fell below the grant price for certain option grants, leading to an unrealized derivative loss. While the resultant expense ratio of 22% was above our targeted range of 18 to 20%, we expect to be around the high end of the range for the full year, including one-time transition costs related to our IT infrastructure and financial systems. We earned $54 million of operating investment income, which was modestly lowered sequentially by approximately $1 million, due to the lower interest rate environment and a decrease in the average invested asset. In total, we generated an operating return on equity of 13% and a fully diluted operating EPS of $1.35. Our diluted book value per share now stands at $39.61 after the payment of special dividends of $4.64 during the quarter. Turning to investments, our $6.1 billion investment portfolio continues to be of a high credit quality and provides strong liquidity given its relatively short duration of approximately 3.5 years. The current pre-tax equivalent book yield is 3.2%. Importantly, the portfolio adds a measure of visibility and stability to our financial results. With the financial market volatility in March, government bond rates declined sharply and credit spreads widened significantly. As a result, unrealized losses on the investment portfolio and derivatives stood at $118 million as declines in the market value of preferred shares and corporate bonds were partially offset by gains in government bonds. In April, financial markets improved, and the marked market on the investment portfolio and derivatives has significantly improved. We expect that the lower interest rate environment will persist for the remainder of 2020, and new money rates and realized income from our interest rate hedging program will be lower than originally expected for the remainder of the year. Overall, we now expect operating investment income to be moderately lower for the full year as compared to 2019. With respect to capital, we ended the quarter with an estimated MICAT ratio of 172%, supported by the runoff of the capital requirements resulting from the aging of the 2018 and prior books. Overall, the company is well capitalized with its MICAT ratio above its targeted operating range of 160 to 165%, and a modest debt to total capital ratio of 15%, consistent with our leverage target. In addition, our $300 million undrawn credit facility provides further capital flexibility. As well, the company has strong liquidity having extended our debt maturity schedule by paying off the June 2020 maturity earlier this year through the issuance of $300 million of seven-year debt at an attractive interest rate of 2.95%. The next debt maturity of $260 million is not until 2024. To date in 2020, we have redeployed approximately $400 million of capital through special dividends. That said, we do not anticipate any further capital redeployment over and above the quarterly ordinary dividend for the remainder of this year. This reflects the economic uncertainty, regulatory considerations, and the emergence of portfolio insurance opportunities as banks and other lenders look to access the government funding programs for insured mortgages. In summary, the company is well-positioned financially with a high-quality investment portfolio and a strong capital and liquidity position. I'll now turn the call back to Stuart to discuss the impact of the emerging economic conditions. 
Stuart? Thanks, Phil. Turning to the current environment, it goes without saying that these are truly unprecedented times, both in terms of the scale and impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the magnitude of support from central banks, governments, and regulators. The federal government has implemented some important programs to help Canadians whose income has been or are at risk of being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. These programs include the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, which provides an incentive for eligible employers to retain employees with the help of a federal wage subsidy, as well as the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which will pay $2,000 per month for up to four months to Canadians who have lost the majority of their income. At the provincial level, measures have been implemented that provide direct cash payments to parents, deferral of taxes, fees, and payments on loans owed to the government. Within the mortgage industry, Lenders and mortgage insurers have agreed to allow borrowers impacted by COVID-19 to defer their mortgage payments for up to six months. Collectively, these measures are aimed at helping to bridge Canadians impacted by the current economic shutdown to when the economy begins to recover, with the goal of reducing the severity of the impact on people and employment. These programs have a direct impact on our business in terms of the level and duration of unemployment, and therefore the ability of borrowers to make their mortgage payments. In addition to measures aimed at income support, the federal government, the Bank of Canada, and ASFI have taken several steps to provide lenders with more liquidity options. From a mortgage insurer perspective, the primary changes have been the reintroduction of an insured mortgage purchase program under which the government may buy up to $150 billion of NHA mortgage-backed securities, as well as their inclusion as eligible collateral for certain Bank of Canada programs. As these programs require insured mortgages, we have seen an increase in demand for portfolio insurance. To maximize the available pool of mortgages for this program, the government has also expanded the product parameters for portfolio insurance to include refinances and mortgages with an amortization up to 30 years, provided they were originated prior to March 20th, 2020. This exception will be in place for the end of this year. Furthermore, the Department of Finance announced that it has suspended the implementation of the proposed changes to the mortgage rate stress test. RC has announced that it too will be suspending a number of consultations, including the amended stress test for uninsured mortgages, in an effort to allow lenders and insurance companies to respond to COVID-19. Notwithstanding all of these measures, there is still a tremendous amount of uncertainty as to how the remainder of this year and next will play out in terms of the health crisis and its impact on the economy. Our strategy is focused on a dynamic, proactive response to the current environment while planning for a variety of potential future outcomes. This includes the development of plausible economic scenarios and stress testing our business under those scenarios to develop appropriate responses in terms of capital flexibility, loss mitigation, and expense management. We take a lot of comfort in the strength of our balance sheet and the quality of our insurance and force. This, together with our disciplined risk management and proven loss mitigation strategies, serve as important mitigants against economic pressure during times like these. From an immediate, tactical perspective, we enacted our business continuity plan earlier in March with all employees working remotely. Our customers remain complimentary of our service delivery, and we continue to make progress on a number of important initiatives despite our remote working environment. Given the wide-scale adoption of the mortgage payment deferral program, we are cross-training some of our underwriters to work in loss mitigation, as we do expect the volume of delinquencies and therefore workout opportunities to increase later in the year as the mortgage payment deferrals come to an end. Based on preliminary reporting by our lenders, we estimate that approximately 13% of 
of our outstanding insured mortgages as of March 31st have taken payment deferrals. That said, approximately 62% of these mortgages have an estimated current effective loan-to-value less than 80%. Based on all the income bridging programs in place, we expect the vast majority of borrowers will return to making regular mortgage payments at the end of the deferral period. We've also implemented a number of underwriting changes to reflect the increased level of risk due to the COVID-19 and low oil price situation. Overall, these changes are aimed at reducing our highest risk loans, which tend to underperform in an economic downturn. At the same time, we've kept the changes as focused as possible to avoid any unnecessary impact on our customers. When it comes to planning for future scenarios, it is clear there are a wider range of potential outcomes for the company in 2020, given the rapidly evolving nature and uncertainty related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Therefore, as noted earlier, we have developed a number of plausible economic scenarios and, for illustration purposes, defined a base and a downside case, reflecting a range of assumptions from macroeconomic factors that may impact our business. The critical driver in each of these two scenarios is the path of the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting duration of social distancing measures and non-essential business shutdown. In our base scenario, we assume that new cases peak in the second quarter, followed by a gradual easing of business closures into the third quarter, allowing for a degree of economic recovery by the end of the year. This helps to mitigate some of the pressure on unemployment, which would end the year in the 8 to 10% range. Under this scenario, housing activity is expected to be significantly reduced during the second quarter as weak consumer confidence and social distancing rules impact consumer behavior. We would expect to see a pickup in activity in the second half of the year as the economic recovery gets underway. House prices do not change materially in our base scenario as listings respond largely in sync with demand. Our downside scenario assumes a continuation of the health crisis well into the second half of the year with ongoing business shutdowns through the end of 2020. Under this scenario, unemployment reaches a much higher peak and remains in the 10 to 15% range at the end of the year. The impact on housing markets is more pronounced, with a significant reduction in activity through the second half of the year and more pressure on house prices as supply outpaces demand. In both scenarios, unemployment rates in the oil-producing regions are expected to remain more elevated due to ongoing pressure on oil prices. Based on the results of our loss forecasting models in each of these two scenarios, we are updating our full-year estimated loss ratio range from 15 to 25 percent to 25 to 40 percent for 2020. We will provide updated estimates as more data becomes available during the course of the next few quarters. New business applications have declined, as one would expect in this environment. However, we have stabilized at approximately 55 percent of the prior year level for now which is encouraging, as clearly there are people who still feel confident about buying a home under these challenging circumstances. We believe market activity will improve once the shutdowns begin to ease and economies begin to recover, subject to the timing and pace of recovery, as noted in our base and downside scenarios. In either case, we expect the overall high-ratio mortgage market to be smaller than the prior year, which will result in lower transactional insurance written premiums for 2020. This will be partially offset by a higher volume of portfolio insurance written premiums due to increased demand from lenders in response to the federal government's liquidity and funding programs. While our overall strategic priorities have not changed, some of them will be deferred in order to accommodate the more immediate need to focus on the current environment, including ensuring our employees remain safe, our business continues to have sufficient capital and liquidity 
and our business continuity plan remains operational and effective, working with our customers, competitors, and government to find the best solutions to help mitigate the impact of this pandemic on borrowers, our industry, and the housing market, including the launch of the Mortgage Payment Deferral Program. Frequent and clear communication to our employees, our customers, our shareholders, our board of directors, and related government stakeholders. Strategic initiatives that have not been deferred include the transition of our IT and accounting infrastructure from the U.S. to Canada, as well as initiatives aimed at driving improved risk selection, customer experience, and productivity, such as our smarter MI underwriting strategy. The COVID-19 pandemic and economic environment continues to evolve at a rapid pace. We are, however, encouraged by the dialogue regarding plans for reopening of non-essential businesses across the country in line with our base case scenario. We continue to monitor the key drivers for our business and will provide updates on our assessment and outlook on a regular basis. In summary, we believe the company is well positioned to manage through this cycle, given the capabilities and experience of our seasoned employee base, our disciplined risk management and proven loss mitigation strategy, together with our balance sheet strength and quality of insurance enforced. Thanks for listening. That concludes our prepared remarks. I will now turn the call back to the operator to commence with Q&A. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now conduct the question and answer session. As a reminder, the conference is being recorded for replay purposes. We will ask you to refrain from using cell phones, speakerphones, or headsets during the Q&A portion of today's call. If you have a question, please press the star followed by the one on a touchtone phone. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. Your questions will be polled in the order that they are received. One moment, please. For your first question. As a reminder of that is star one to ask a question. We'll now take our first question from Jeffrey Dunn from Doling Doling and Partners, please. Thanks, good morning. Um, obviously there's a number of, of near term challenges ahead, but Stuart, I'm I'm curious more of your, your mid to longer term view as to what this pandemic experience might influence and how General MI Canada does business, uh, how its operations work. It, it seems like this could be a catalyst for a number of changes, digitization, et cetera, on a number of fronts. So I'm curious what you think the the positive side uh, of this experience could be on the back side of the crisis. Yeah, Jeff, good morning. Thanks for the question. You know, I think absolutely we're, like many companies now, learning a lot about what the art of the possible is in terms of digitization and more, frankly, more remote working and having been working uh, entirely remotely as a company for the last six weeks. I would say we're very, very comfortable and very, um, confident in our ability to continue to deliver um, on all our commitments to our customers uh, in this form. And so I think longer term to your question, there's absolutely going to be questions around how we now continue to operate and frankly, um, you know, how we reintegrate into an actual office environment in the future. Uh, I can tell you, I don't believe it will look the same as it is today or was before we came into this uh, pandemic. There is no doubt um, already a high degree of digitization in our business. As you know, we, we do underwrite all our files in a digital realm, and our lenders have seen some 
accelerated adoption of things like e-signatures and digital closings. So I think the industry as a whole has seen some benefits from this, this crisis that will persist into the future, making it much easier to conduct our business. You know, you think about appraisers. Even appraisers have continued to do their appraisals, but in a much more digitized way. They're not actually visiting homes. They're relying on photos submitted by the homeowners, uh, digitally printed to and geo-printed to ensure they are, in fact, from that location. Um, and appraisers can do their job that way. And so I think there will be efficiencies, um, cost savings, and, uh, and, and effectively, our business should benefit from that in the long term. Ultimately, as you pointed out and as is obvious, the real issue for us is going to be the economy and how that unfolds and what that means to our business from a loss forecasting and a loss ratio point of view, uh, along with the market recovery and how much uh, room premium will be available in the market going forwards. Okay. And then I understand, and first of all, you're, you're based in, uh, in distressed outlooks are very helpful, but um, and I understand that the, the timing of the, the COVID and the uh, business closures are the primary driver, but you know, the added complication right now is oil. So could you talk a little bit more about how you're thinking about, um, you know, maybe, maybe COVID has a, uh, a quicker turnaround this year in terms of reopening, but you're still dealing with the depressed oil prices. Uh, so how are you thinking about that economic impact in the region such as Alberta and other, other types of business uh, areas? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, we already acknowledge that Alberta was in a tough spot coming into this crisis. And as you know, from prior discussions, we certainly have been seeing a disproportionate amount of our claims coming from, from that part of the country. And this is not going to help. Obviously, our view is that, you know, as the COVID crisis uh, wanes and as the economic recovery gets underway, um, it's a longer path for Alberta and the oil, uh, oil pressure that they're seeing. I would ask um, Craig Sweeney, who is our Chief Press Officer, to just comment a bit more on how we're thinking about Alberta and the risk that it represents right now. Yeah, thanks, Jordan, and uh, good morning, Jeff. So, yeah, certainly in our, uh, in our base scenario, we, um, we, we have more negative assumptions for unemployment and house price depreciation for the oil regions, and in particular for Alberta. You know, if you look at the... Um, you know, the consensus around unemployment from the big six banks here, Alberta could be uh, averaging anywhere from between 10 and 15% unemployment in 2020, and uh, that certainly aligns with our base scenario. And uh, definitely house prices uh, could come off anywhere from, you know, 3 to, to 5 or 6% uh, this year. To your point, and this is the key differentiator, we do not expect a fast turnaround or recovery for, um, for Alberta. So again, in our base scenario, our, our unemployment does stay uh, elevated above what uh, 2019 levels are, uh, well into 2021. Um, and we do expect potentially some modest house price depreciation uh, in the outer years as well. So uh, certainly it's a, a much uh, slower recovery. And you know, we do take some comfort from the recovery in WTI just in the last couple of weeks. And, and certainly OPEC with their forecast um, for WTI to be $40 in the third quarter. But we, uh, we believe that, uh, and again, in our base scenario, that oil won't recover to $40 to $50 uh, again until well into 2021. And so we've, you know, in response, we've taken some, um, some underwriting actions in the province and, uh, and really focused on areas that are more sensitive to, uh, to the oil prices um, 
within the region, uh, as well as sectors uh, that are more sensitive to uh, to the impact from COVID-19. And so, you know, this will certainly help from a portfolio quality that we originate in uh, in Alberta in 2020, uh, which should help it sort of weather the storm uh, of economic uncertainty coming. But uh, to Stuart's point, um, you know, we do expect. Uh, Alberta to over-contribute to losses this year and to next year. And, you know, I think if we look back over the last couple of years, they've been anywhere from 40 to 60% of our losses. And uh, I think the expectation would be for that trend to continue uh, this year and next, uh, if not, maybe even go a little bit higher. Very helpful. Thank you very much. We'll now take our next question. Jane Loan from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Yes, thank you. Good morning. My uh, my first question, I just wanted to get a better sense as to uh, how the uh, how, how the losses and the loss ratio will will perform, and uh, and the underlying drivers of those losses. By the sounds of it, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we, we shouldn't expect to see a material increase in delinquency rates uh, in let's say Q2 and Q3, given the payment deferrals, uh, and. You know, as a result, uh, I, I guess the the increase in losses through IBNR is going to be driven by higher reserves or average reserves per delinquency um, in, in those two quarters. Is that the right way to think about how the financial statements are going to flow and and uh, and look in Q2 and Q3? Okay, good morning, to Sergio. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is really. Not an expectation of seeing much on the new delinquency front given the mortgage deferral program. But as, as you know, our business is really built on reserving for incurred but not reported as well, and meaning that when we think an actual loss event has occurred, someone has missed a payment, we're trying to estimate what is the best uh, uh, estimate of losses from those uh, population of files. So, uh, we are going to be implementing some form of reserving for that. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Phil to give you a little more detail on that. Hey, Hi, good morning, Jane. Uh, the way we're thinking about it, Jane, is that you know, while reported delinquencies are not going to be um, rising as a result of payment deferrals, we think it's important to reflect the borrowers that are taking payment deferrals that may ultimately go delinquent post the deferral period um, ends. As a result of that, we're going to take a model approach and we are going to essentially estimate what proportion of the borrowers that will ultimately go into delinquency post the deferral period and we'll build the um, incurred but not reported reserves so that at such time as when those delinquencies do happen, they're already reserved appropriately. And we'll be essentially estimating on a quarterly basis what delinquencies have been avoided in that quarter that will ultimately happen in the post-deferral period. Okay, and uh, so if I'm looking at the breakdown of loss reserves, we'll see we'll see that increase in IBNR, of course. Case reserves uh, fairly steady. What what do you think in around the uh, the uh, provision for adverse deviation? Should we see a, a large uptick there as well? Well, I think it'll be a proportional increase to the same proportion that incurred but not reported increases. Um, I think or reserving practices, you know, have proven to be you know, fairly accurate, so I don't necessarily see 
um, a tremendous change in the approach to adverse deviation, but I think just given the fact that incurred but not reported is rising, as Stuart noted, the overall um, expected loss ratio is rising, one would expect a proportional increase in the adverse deviation provision. Okay, great. And uh, if, if we take this out to uh, 2021, I know this is uh, starting to, to stretch a little bit on the on the guidance and the outlook, but if we're taking these uh, reserves today in 2020 uh, for IBNR, uh, would, would that also suggest that 2021 we're going to be uh, perhaps experiencing more stable or even uh, a potential improvement in the loss ratio uh, in that base case scenario or even in the downside scenario? Well, I think, James, it really depends on the economic conditions and the unemployment situation. I mean, clearly there are some borrowers that have taken payment deferrals, but there could be other factors that play into 2021, which is the overall economic environment as it relates to both home prices and unemployment. So there could be new delinquencies that occur in 2021 that are not necessarily part of the payment deferral population. Um, borrowers that you know may be current today, but because of you know situations in 2021. So I think it's premature for us to comment on the potential loss ratio, but I think you know it will be driven by the economic fundamentals in 2021. Okay, thanks. Last last one for me, and then uh, just around. The, the conversation of the uh, the MICAT ratio and capital uh, deployment. MICAT currently uh, north of 170%. The target range is 160 to 165. Is that is that target range still in play in this current environment, or should we expect to see MICAT uh, remain uh, well above that target range? And then the, the follow-on to that is. Uh, obviously, the, the guidance to remove um, any further special dividends and, and capital return to shareholders. Um, is there a potential to see that come back in the second half uh, under, let's say, the base case scenario and a, and a quicker recovery? Hey, Jane, um, I would say to you that the guidance around our um, desired operating range is still there. You know, 160 to 165 is definitely the case. However, what I would tell you is that, as, as we noted in our scripts, we are certainly seeing higher demand for portfolio insurance right now. And so while we are certainly trying to um, remain prudent as well in terms of capital strength, we're also trying to allocate an appropriate amount of our capital to, to serve our lenders in this need. So we will be looking at maintaining our MICAD in that 160 to 165, possibly a bit more for that, but you wouldn't expect to see it build materially above 170 because we are deploying more capital to portfolio insurance. Um, and given that that demand is still um, potentially un, you know, unexplored, i.e. There is, there is some that's being expressed, but there could be more through the rest of the year, it would be premature to conclude that there would be excess capital available later in this year for any redeployment, which is why we said we would not anticipate any further redeployment this year. Clearly, portfolio insurance you know, um, is an opportunity for us to help offset some of the reduction in the transactional insurance volume. Um, and as you know from past discussions, we get an opportunity to pick uh, the portfolio that we'd like to insure so that we can ensure it's within our risk appetite, um, et cetera. So this is something we want to take advantage of um, and in order to, to deploy capital towards uh, top-line growth and just maintaining as much of our premium written base as possible. Great. Thank you. Moving on to our next question, we will take 
Graham Riding from TD Security. Please go ahead, sir. Hi. Good morning. Uh, you just make the intro off mute. Uh, can I follow on that on that comment there, Stuart? You know, are you are you comfortable that there is enough demand out there for portfolio insurance to uh, you know, can you write as much as you want to sort of manage your capital ratio and, and try to offset uh, the lower transactional market? You know, what if there's not sufficient demand on the uh, portfolio side? Yeah, Graham, I, I can tell you that so far we've seen uh, demand in excess of our appetite. Uh, we're not able to fill all the demand at this point. Um, the, you know, latter part of the year may see more demand. Clearly there was an initial uh, uh, reaction to some of the government's funding and liquidity programs, which drove the initial round of demand. Um, I think we may see some of that uh, again in the second half of the year, but it remains to be seen. So clearly, um, at this point, we're taking advantage of the opportunity, as I said, to write some high-quality um, portfolio insurance. Um, it will not be enough to fully offset the reduction in the transactional insurance volumes, but it certainly helps to uh, partially offset it. And is that just a reflection of portfolio? Uh, it carries sort of a higher amount of, uh, it consumes a higher amount of capital relative to the premiums written that it generates? Yeah, it does have, um, as you know, a, a fairly heavy capital uh, allocation. Um, and at the same time, the premium rates are obviously much lower so than our transactional written premium. So it is going to help, but it will not fully uh, uh, cover the loss in, or reduction in transactional insurance. Got it. And then just on your uh, your loss ratio range, 25 to 40%, you know, the commentary in the MDNA sounds like you're leaning more heavily towards your base case outlook, which is 25%, as opposed to the downside scenario. Is that a fair assessment, or at this point are you used with, um, you know, trying to equally balance the potential for, uh, for that full range? You know, it's, it, first of all, we, we basically put those two scenarios out to act as bookends of, of our views right now. And there's certainly a continuum between the base and the downside. And, you know, just because we're, we're maybe heading towards a base case scenario doesn't mean the loss ratio is absolutely 25%. It depends on the degree of base scenario. And, of course, as you trend more towards the downside, it could creep up to eventually as high as maybe 40%. But, you know, I would say... Given what we're seeing in the market right now, given the discussions around reopening of, uh, of non-essential businesses, I would say we're definitely of the view that we're heading towards a base case scenario. Um, it just depends on to what extent it's a base case. There could be a best case, base case scenario, or there could be some more of a, of a blend between the base and the downside. So uh, at this point, early on still, of course, but I would say we are cautiously optimistic that it is more towards the base case than the downside. Uh, got it. And what about the regular dividend, the uh, 40% loss ratio, if that does prove to be the case, is the regular dividend safe, or how do you uh, how do you think about that? Yeah, in our view, you know, our regular dividend uh, remains safe uh, well beyond our downside scenario. Um, and at this point, that's why we were fairly explicit on our intent to maintain that. That's it for me. Thank you. We'll now take our next question from um, Tom McKinnon from BMO Capitals. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Morning. A uh, question about the uh, um, 
uh, thanks to the guide with respect to net premiums earned for the remainder of 2020. Um, I'm just wondering what sort of uh, net premium written that might imply, given the fact that you're not advocating any change in the uh, premium recognition curve. So uh, um, that's that's my first question. Thanks. Yeah, Tom, um, as far as net premiums written are concerned, I mean, obviously we're saying it will be lower than what we had originally anticipated for this year and certainly lower than 2019. Um, the extent to which it is lower at this point remains to be seen, and again, it will really follow uh, whichever scenario we end up going down. Um, the premiums earned, as you know, really uh, is somewhat stable in that it reflects the last five years of, of business. So at this point, um, you know, we're able to give a bit more comfort around that because whatever we write this year, has, has somewhat limited impact on the amount of earned premium. And clearly, we're not expecting to see a 50% reduction in the amount of premiums written this year. You know, we indicated that we think market activity could be 15 to 25% lower in our base case scenario. And I think you know, if we see something like that, um, you know, with some partial offset from portfolio, from portfolio insurance, you get a sense of where we think premium written might be for this year. Um, and that could get you know, a little worse if you head down towards the downside scenario. Well, it's just that the that net premium earn guide for the remainder of 2020 seems to be about 10% lower. Uh, and given the fact that uh, you know most of the stuff relates to prior periods, I'm just wondering. Uh, and if I took down net premiums written 15 to 25% for the remainder of 2020, I'm sure we wouldn't have a 10% reduction in the net premium earned. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, yeah. Let me turn over to some additional comments on this. Okay. Um, Tom, good morning. Um, we did note in our MDA that with the new base scenario and potential downside scenario, there's the potential that the loss emergence pattern may be prolonged. And as a result of that, that could mean that we will be updating or loss um, or premiums earn curve. Hence, the commentary around um, premiums earn being potentially modestly lower because there is the potential that the loss emergence pattern on the last five books of business could be prolonged as a result of the COVID-19 um, economic scenarios. Okay, that's helpful then. So sounds like there's uh, really the, the best thing to do is then adjust the recognition curve in order to uh, come in the line with your guide for the, uh, uh, for the net premium earned. Is that safe assumption to make? I think that's a reasonable assumption in light of the fact that obviously with the higher unemployment and potentially softer home prices, that could mean that the loss emergence pattern on you know the last three to four books of business is prolonged. Okay, that's great. Uh, the second point is just with respect to the payment deferrals, it doesn't seem like there's any impact on the LICAT ratio, at least in the near term, but uh, these things become delinquent after six months. Um, then does it hit the LICAT ratio? Tom itself. Ratio, I um, it won't necessarily have a direct impact. I mean, it, its most direct impact is through the loss ratio, um, because we don't necessarily increase capital for delinquencies. Uh, we, we're already holding capital as if delinquencies will occur in a much worse situation than we we're anticipating. So the most immediate impact on the uh, MICAT ratio will be through um, operating income and equity. So we don't anticipate that it will have you know, any significant impact on the MICAT ratio. 
Okay. Thanks for that. As a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Once again, that is star 1. We'll now take our next question from Jamie Clone. Please go ahead. Your line is up. Yeah, thanks. I uh, I wanted to follow up actually, um, given the uh, given the market turbulence on uh, on the outlook for uh, what was described as growth initiatives or potential growth initiatives in uh, at the investor day. Um, can you talk about where you are on say, not private mortgage insurance? Is that something that is that is shelved for now? And uh, and any other initiatives that were that were in place uh, and spoken about at the investor day. Yeah, Jane, thanks for that. The um, the private mortgage insurance opportunity for us uh, is on hold as the uh, review that was underway with OSFI has been put on hold as as they have uh, a number of other initiatives to allow uh, ourselves and other regulated entities to focus on COVID nineteen. So. For now, um, we have shelved that. We are still, of course, uh, very interested in pursuing that. Um, and as soon as we can uh, get back to some version of normal and allow uh, or re-engage with the regulator on it, we will um, we will hope to see that come to fruition. And, and as far as any other relationship to your question, you know, like I said in my comments, uh, we're still very active in terms of some of the strategic initiatives that we had underway. Uh, in terms of you know improving or revising our underwriting uh, systems, allowing for better risk selection, with an ultimate goal of also improving the customer experience. That work is underway, and in fact, um, it's somewhat of an opportune time to actually be focused on that because we are seeing less less volume, so there are more uh, of our resources available to focus on those kinds of projects. Um, and obviously, we are also very actively involved in moving our. IT infrastructure from the U.S. up to Canada that continues uh, and is a very important focus for us. Does that answer your question? I think you might have himself muted. Moving on to our next question. Graham Whiting from TD Securities, please go ahead. I just want to follow up on the the payment deferrals. Uh, I think you said 13% of the end of Q1. Is there been any change of that to that number uh, through April? And what is the mix of that like? Is, uh, um, you know, in the mortgage market in Canada, is uh, it fairly balanced between the insured and the uninsured space? Are you seeing... Um, more weighting and deferrals to, to sort of one side or the other. Graham, um, there was no change to that number in that we only just recently got that report. It was a preliminary report from lenders, um, you know, reflecting the position as at March. Now we will be expecting uh, more comprehensive reporting from lenders on the 15th of every month going forward, and that will certainly help us to get a better uh, level of uh, analysis on the deferrals. I will say that yes, there was no doubt some uh, you know overweighting in the deferral population to Alberta, as you would probably expect. Um, but beyond that, it, it fairly well was represented the uh, allocation across the country. 
Great, and fairly consistent between uh, whether it's uninsured or insured mortgages are being deferred. Is that is that fair? Um, you know, we only got the reporting on insured, of course, but um, I think it would be a fairly safe assumption that because of the the, the scale of the take up, it would have been a fairly similar proportional allocation across insured and uninsured. Yes. Okay. And what is the impact on your overall loan to value if you assume that you know 13% um, of your book is deferred for six months? I would say it's a pretty minimal impact. I mean, you're talking about the you know uh, the lack of principal pay down and a little bit of additional interest accrual for that period of time. I don't expect that will make a big difference in our overall loan to value. The bigger driver will, of course, come from where house prices go. Fair enough. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you. And let's take our next question from Jeff Guan from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, good morning. Um, just wondering how the dynamic, if it's changed with respect to the homeowners program, um, if it's operating different than what you would kind of call it during normal times. But also, too, it, um, are you getting access? Uh, to be able to with borrowers that are on uh, deferred payments that wouldn't have been on your radar screen prior to COVID-19. Jeff, yeah, I mean, really what this is is, is a large-scale implementation of one of our, let's call it tried and tested um, home ownership assistance programs. So deferring payments through a period of temporary financial difficulty is very much something we've done in the past and successfully so. Um, I would say, you know, that is part of the reason why we have a degree of confidence around the number of borrowers that will resume payments. Clearly, um, you know, there's a lot of income bridging going on now from the government, and if it's successful, uh, a lot of those people will be able to resume payments. Um, we still have access to borrowers, and certainly our, our loss mitigation team, our home ownership assistance team, are actively engaged in working with borrowers, especially when they've reached out to them directly. Um, and or through lenders, that, that has not stopped. Um, and I would say that we expect to be very, very active in this space, even as the program continues and, and as, in fact, deferrals come to an end. You know, there will be a fairly big involvement, as you would imagine, from, from the big banks in terms of helping borrowers get back onto their payment schedules. But there may be other lenders, smaller lenders perhaps, more regional lenders that aren't uh, as able or resourced to be able to manage that, and we'll certainly be active in helping them. So we are fully geared up to do that. As you heard from my comments, we're cross-training a number of our underwriters right now to be able to assist in this area, and we feel confident that we can manage uh, um, with that process. I'm sorry. So are you at 13%? You know who all of those borrowers are? Yes, we do. I mean, the lenders report to us at the file level, so we are able to identify which of our borrowers, uh, or which of the insured mortgages are on the deferral program. Okay. And then, um, as, as, I guess, to tag along to that is, you know, what are some of the factors that guide, you know, which subset of these borrowers on payment deferrals um, that you think would otherwise have gone delinquent and that you plan to reserve for? The, the factors are really going to be a combination of things. Clearly, Equity plays a big role. So if you have a lower loan to value, um, you're probably going to have a better chance of curing yourself if you aren't, in fact, able to replace your income and you have to sell one day. 
Um, so if you have very little equity, that probably isn't an option to you. And then it's going to be a function of what, you know, what sector of the economy you're in and what type of employment you were in before and whether or not that's something that can resume uh, once we, we come out of this. And so uh, we, we will be doing a more detailed analysis of that once we get the more formal reporting from lenders and identify the areas that we think will be at higher risk of, of not being able to resume their payments. Um, but to a large extent, the, the borrowers that have taken up these deferrals, um, some of them have done it just because it's an additional form of uh, flexibility, not necessarily because they absolutely need it. Um, and I think you'll see that there's a high proportion of folks that will just um, be able to resume payment once they are more comfortable with their, uh, their uh, particular personal situation. Uh, and that's basically what we've, uh, we've been um, expecting at this point, but we will know more once we get more comprehensive reporting. Okay, and, and just my last question was um, going back to Bill's uh, comments on uh, the premium recognition curve and premium surge. My recollection was I think back in the IPO, um, there was like a big change in the premium recognition curve. I think it was million. Um, but my understanding, I guess, is you know, the premium recognition curve is always going to get updated into Phil Comet. It's kind of based on paths of time and experience around loss formation. Um, it, it was what happened at the IPO kind of a, a one-time thing, or, or if loss formation accelerates faster than, or meaningfully faster than what you're expecting, could we see something sizable like what happened back then um, in 2020 or 2020, whatever that time period would be? Jeff so itself, back at the IPO time, there was a change in the definition. At the time of the IPO, um, the regulation required you to use the prescribed um, earnings curve. And what was happening was the loss emergence pattern was divergent from the prescribed um, earnings curve that OSPI at that time had prescribed. So that was somewhat of a one-time catch-up, primarily because you, the delta was growing between the prescribed curve and the actual loss emergence pattern. Um, today, any changes are made on a prospective basis, so any impact would, ex would be generally expected to be lower than you would have seen at the IPO time. The IPO time was a little bit of a cumulative catch-up. Okay, perfect. Thank you. I will now take our last question from Jane Blone. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, just wanted to get a little bit more color on uh, two items. First, uh, in the downside scenario, uh, house price declines are uh, are expected uh, in the second half of 2020, and then material declines thereafter. Can you can you just put a little bit of color around uh, what you view as material house price declines? Yeah, James, you know, I would say it's an estimate at this point, but, you know, anything from 10 to 15 percent would certainly be within our realm of possibility on a national basis. Uh, as you know, there is no national housing market, so you would expect to see more pressure perhaps in certain parts of the country. Alberta is one area that would be a higher risk, um, but certainly uh, 10 to 15 percent is sort of the range we're thinking of. Okay, great. And then uh, in terms of the... Uh, 13% of mortgages that are currently under payment deferral. Uh, I think you mentioned 60% have an LTV of less than 80%. Would you be able to also give, uh, 
give us what percentage has uh, has an LTV of uh, 95% or in that uh, 90 to 95% bucket? Uh, you know what, at this point it's a little preliminary to do that. What we will commit to doing is providing more detailed analysis at our, at our next quarterly call because we'll have more um, comprehensive reporting from our lenders at that point. So I'd rather not um, uh, surmise on that number right now. Okay, thank you. At this time, we would we'll like to turn the conference back to you, Mr. Levins, for any additional closing remarks. Yes, indeed. Thank you again, and thanks to everyone for joining us today. We do appreciate your time. Uh, we would like to thank you for your questions, and this concludes our first quarter call. Uh, we look forward to talking with you again in the near future. This concludes today's call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.